Thanks, Mark. Good morning, everybody. I'm Seth. I'm one of the pastors, and I get to walk us through the text this morning. But before I do, uh, we're going to do a little bit of a recap. You know, it's the whole like way you watch TV now is kind of interesting, where like they drop a whole season all at once, and they haven't dropped a previous season for like the past two years. And so it'll happen where Taylor and I will be watching Netflix. And it's like, oh, that show we liked, it's on again. Season four is out, and you like start to watch episode one of season four, and you're like. I don't know what's going on. You're just, you're just lost. And so you have to go back and watch some YouTube video that somebody who made has no life put together. I'm like, what happened in season three before you start the thing? Which should be a code, a trigger for you that if you don't remember what happened, you should probably stop watching because it wasn't that good. That's a, that should be when we know maybe it wasn't actually that good. Maybe we were just mindlessly looking to entertain ourselves without any real purpose. But uh, so you end up doing have to recap. But anyway, some of you have been with us through the whole book of John, you've been here through John 1 through 16. Some of you have joined the church or started attending the church more recently, but all of us uh, took about four or five weeks off from John. And so I'm going to do a bit of a recap on where we've been, where we are, and where we're going in the book of John, because the book of John from here point on is going to take us about all the way up through Easter. So we're jumping in on, uh, you know, season four of a five-part situation we got going on here, all right? So uh, the way that John starts in John chapter one, it's called the prologue. It starts off with like the, in the beginning was the word, the word was God, the word was with God. Uh, if you were here when we did that, it was a long time ago. So that's the prologue. And then it jumps into what uh, scholars call the book of signs or the book of signs and sayings. And it's really hinged on the sayings and activity of Jesus, and in particular, seven key miracles uh, that are meant to be revelations of what the kingdom of God is like in contrast with the kingdoms of the earth. And so he does these different miracles. He turns water into wine. He heals the official's son. He heals the paralytic. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on the waves, and then he heals the blind man. Uh, and those kind of big uh, events give shape to what's going on, that in the kingdom, uh, the, the sight will be restored to the blind. There won't be any absence of food. Everyone will be provided for. Uh, it'll be this, this place of wholeness, no tears, everything is great. And what we're getting to now is kind of like, um, it's pivoting to more like the book of glory. And so what, it's, what we see is that the first half of the book of John covers about three years of Jesus' life, but the second half of the book of John really focuses in on really just three days. And so the narrative is really slowed down. The first chunk, it's like, this happens, this happens, this happens. And there's large spans of time. But here we are really slowing down into the next book. You can hit that next slide. The pivoting point is raised Lazarus, and we call this the book of glory. Uh, and the irony throughout the whole gospel of John is that the book of glory, or the, the glory of God, the glory of Jesus, uh, is actually going to be in his crucifixion, which is like the opposite of how kings typically glorified. He comes riding in on a donkey, um, he, and now we're entering into what he calls the upper room discourse. Right before he's about to be betrayed and died, he takes his close peoples up, and he gives them like this really intimate thing where he's going to wash their feet. He's going to predict his betrayal and his denial from his closest friends. Uh, and he's going to promise that help is coming. The Spirit's going to work with you. And also you're going to be hated. And so he's preparing kind of the core disciples for what's going to happen next after I die. Here's the next thing. And as we're getting into this text today, we're getting into John 17, which is Jesus' prayer. So like his, his intimate teaching is just wrapping up. And now we're going to enter into this prayer moment. And this week we're talking about how Jesus prays for himself, which is interesting. Think about Jesus praying for himself. And next week we're going to talk about how Jesus prays for us, for the church. That's what we're going to see. But so much of this glory reality is shaping and beginning to crystallize. What is his glory going to actually be? 
how's it going to play out? And we were given a basketball hoop uh, in the last couple months, and it, I just, like last week, went and set it up. And it's like a full-on basketball hoop, not like a little text one, a full-on one. And I dragged it out to the front yard, one of those big, huge boxes. And I start cutting it and uh, cutting up the boxes. And we're like one of those neighborhoods where the, the kids all kind of like swarm like bees up and down, you know. And all of a sudden, you know, one kid sees a hoop getting opened. And then next thing you know, there's three kids. Next thing there's five kids. The, the hoop is getting opened. They're all helping me. It takes me two hours because they're helping me. Would have taken me 25 <laughs> Would have taken me 25 minutes, but you have, you know, the elementary age girls playing house in the box. <laughs> the best part of this was when I had to go in for dinner, they said, can we keep the box? And I was like, you absolutely can't. And so they dragged all my trash to their house. <laughs> I haven't talked to their parents about it, but they have all my trash in their house. I don't have to put it out for bulk pickup and wait within the side yard. So, and then all the kids are out and I, I, uh, I didn't put the hoop all the way up because I, I was thinking, what would I want when I was like ages four to nine? And it was like a hoop I could dunk on all the time. So now the hoop's like goes from here to here. You know, there's a whole missing piece I didn't put in. And they're all descending down. But there's like this moment where, uh, you know, the hoop finally gets raised up and they all gather around. You know, it's like. <laughs> and there's kids holding footballs and they drop them. You know, some kid. His whole, their scooters are just, they just leave the scooter halfway down the street and come running to the new basketball hoop in the front yard of the house. And it's like that, but the, the picture of like the scooters and the footballs left and going to see the thing, it's like they, they were, it's like the gravity, right? That's what I think about the word glory. It's like the, the attractive power that captures the attention and the imagination. And like the scooters were, keep, were like they were glorious. This was glorious. But there's something more glorious, and you drop it, and you run and go. And this is really the idea of the glory of God, is, is this gravity, the attention-snagging thing, is Jesus about to be glorified. He's telling you what his glory is about to be. And glory does sound like an overly religious word, but it's really just the gravitas, the weight, the eyeball-snagging power of God. And a lot of us think we have this choice of like giving glory to God or giving glory to nothing, but what I want to kind of argue this morning is that you've got to glorify something. Everyone is giving undue attention and energy to something. A person, a news station, a celebrity, a financial market, a business deal. Something is constantly grabbing us and taking hold of us and capturing our attention. So you've got to glorify something. But I want to argue that my big idea is this. You've got to glorify something, but... Jesus is the right thing to glorify. And not only is he just the right thing to glorify, but the good life, actually the best life, the best thing for you is to glorify Jesus. Not just because he says so, not just out of obedience, not just out of submission, not just out of service, all of which are good reasons, but for your sake, for my sake, glorifying Jesus is the best life. That giving our undue attention, the gravitas of our heart, mind, souls to him is the best thing for us. So I have a, a slide for this. Thank you. God to glorify someone, and glorifying Jesus is the best life. All right, let me pray, and then I'll walk us through this text. Jesus, help us see and savor and believe with our hearts and our minds that uh, the only thing worth substantially and eternally and regularly giving glory to is you, that other things can be enjoyed and appreciated, but you're the only thing worth really glorifying. 
And God, I pray that you'd help that kind of religious-sounding word uh, land a little bit, that we can see how good you are, and that we'd be quick to be desiring to give you more glory, and it wouldn't just be some religious duty pressure that we feel like we have to do, otherwise we'll be in bad shape. So in your name we pray, amen, amen. So John 17, verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. This idea of the hour coming has kind of been unfolding in the last two chapters, that people are saying, when's the time, when's the time, when are we going to glorify you, when are we going to honor you, when are we going to see you high and lifted up? Um, reigning and crowned and thrown. And he says, the hour is coming. So this is Jesus turning his eyes away from his disciples, turning to the Father and praying, saying, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son. Give glory to me now, Lord. And that sounds weird. Should people, like, should you pray that prayer? You know, Father, the hour has come. Give glory to Seth. That sounds like a risky deal, you know, and what's Jesus got going on here? Why is he able to pray this, and should we pray like him? Because we talk about being followers of Jesus, we want to be like Jesus, should we pray a prayer like he prays? Lord, glorify me. Well, if we rightly understand the way that Jesus is asking to be glorified, we'll understand that we should pray like him, that we'd be glorified like Jesus, and we'll understand that we may not actually want to pray that prayer, because Jesus' glorification involves his crucifixion and death. Lord! Make me a suffering servant on behalf of others. Lord, show me to be a king unlike other kings. Lord, don't crown me in gold. Crown me with thorns. Father, help me be the opposite of all the other leaders. Father, don't lift me up for my sake. Lift me up for the sake of others. We can pray like that. We should pray like that. The question is, do we really want to? Do we think that's a good idea? Jesus is praying for the Father. Here's, here's another side thing that I feel like can't be said enough, is if Jesus needs to pray, then you need to pray. And if Jesus needs to pray for himself, then you need to pray for yourself. I think a lot of times, like in good Christian circles, it's like, let's pray. And I pray for everybody, everybody else, which is good. I'm not saying don't pray for everybody else. But you pray for everybody else, you don't pray for yourself. But you need to pray for you. You need to ask the Spirit to work in your heart and mind. You need to ask the Father to work in your heart, mind, and soul. It's kind of like when you're on the airplane, you know, and they're, going, they're showing you, hey, when the plane crashes, you know, put on your mask first and everybody else's mask. Nobody's like, if the plane's crashing, that little mask ain't going to do anything, you know, but, but, it's, uh, but it's, there's like that reality of like, take care of yourself first and then help somebody else like that. I do think Jesus prays for himself first and then he prays for other people. There's something significant to the order here. I think needs to be modeled. I do think we as a church can pray for ourselves. What do you need God to do in your life, heart, mind, and soul? Pray for that. And then move on to others. Because sometimes we don't even know how to pray for others until the Spirit starts to work in our heart. And then we see that I pray for others differently after I pray for myself. Jesus prays for himself. Glorify. The time has come. Why? So that Not just so he can be glorified, but so he can glorify the Father. When you get to act like a servant on behalf of the flourishing of others... That actually glorifies the Father because we're made in God's image. Male and female alike, we're all representative images of God Most High. And when you act like a loving servant, you're actually faithfully imaging God the Father. And so when you are acting like the self-forgetful one who lifts others up at the expense of yourself, helps others flourish at the expense of yourself, you are representing the heart and character of God. You're not just being a good person. You're not just doing nice things. You're not just 
considering others. You're actually making much of God most high because God has made us people consistent with his character. The Son may glorify you, verse 2, since you have given him authority over all flesh and to eternal life to all whom you've given him. Even this we see that Jesus doesn't operate outside the will of the Father ever, period. Jesus has the authority to give eternal life to all who the Father has given to him. Jesus has absolute freedom to operate within the will of the Father. That The Father is giving some to the Son, and the Son is saving all of them without exception. That even Jesus' prayer, Father, glorify me. He's saying glorify me in a way that's congruent and in line with your heart and your will. He's not asking the Father to change his will. He's saying, let me live in line with and according to your will. All that you've given to me, I'm ready to save. Verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We tend to think in American society that there, are, that there is God or there is not God. Those are like the, the options, atheism or theism. Whereas what Jesus is getting at here is not that they may know that there is a God, that they may know our God, but that they know the one true God. The options here aren't between atheism and theism. The options are between false gods and the one true God. Those are real options, right? And we tend to think of gods as like some philosophical thing, like there is this God, he's omnipresent, omnipotent, omni-this, omni-that, and people debate and argue, is there this one or is there not that one? Whereas functionally, if you think about a God as being defined like this, a God is anything or anyone that defines your reality and tells you how to live, then we all have lots of gods. Who defines your reality and who tells you how to live? You might not call that person a god, but functionally in your life, they are. So all of us are not really choosing between being really atheists and being really theists. We're choosing between being polytheists, who like try to let a lot of things define our reality and try and let a lot of things tell us how to live, and being worshipers of the one true God. And here's what he says it is. This is eternal life, that they know the one true God. When does eternal life start? Because most of us think eternal life is what happens after our funeral, or memorial service, or whatever you want to call it. This is pretty different. Eternal life is knowing the one true God. Knowing is an interesting word. Like I read parenting books, and I wasn't any better of a parent. Right, but I mean, before I had a kid, before I was a parent, I read parenting books. You know, maybe not everyone operates like me, but I read multiple dozens of parenting books. Then I had a kid, and I was like, I don't know anything. Yeah, I remember the first time changing the diaper, and the nurse had to come in and finish the job. The books, you know, so, so there's knowledge that you like, get from books and there's knowledge you get from like, lived experience. Right? And relational knowledge is all lived experience. Or if I wrote you a book about my wife and then you read the book and you never like sat down across from her at a table, you wouldn't know her. You would know about her or you'd know her vicariously or things like that. This relational knowledge. Even this, like you have this eternal life starting but not, 
You know, one of, one of my favorite things about New Year's Eve was I got to officiate my little sister's wedding, and so it was kind of like a it was a real rager as far as I go, because uh, it was like the wedding was at 4:30, then there was like a dinner at six, and then there was a reception slash New Year's Eve party from 9 p.m. till 1 a.m., which I'm usually into my first or second REM cycle by 9 p.m. <laughs> and so at about 10.30, someone's like, are you going to make it? I was like, if I wasn't going to make it, I would have not made it two hours ago. At this point, the adrenaline has just got me going. And so, but there's like, this is like this idea of like being married, like you do the ceremony and you take vows, you say your I do's, right? And then, then there's like this period, which is always the worst part of every wedding for everybody, except for the photographer, who's like, this is why I live, right? And you have this like cocktail hour, and you're making sure everyone's in the photos, and you're not, you can't have dinner yet, but you're in this like period where like there's joy because we just got married, and you're like, my cheeks hurt from all the smiling, and it's like, can someone corral that toddler, and and it's like, can we have dinner yet? And it's like the party hasn't started, but we're, we're already married. Like that kind of window between the ceremony ending and dinner hasn't started yet, that's like our whole life as Christians. We've done our vows, we're married, we're connected, we're the bride of Christ, but the party hasn't started yet. And there's like this joy and this unfulfilled, there's these responsibilities and things you have to do and but it's like not the real reason you signed up, but, it's, but the, the party's going to happen, right? That's like the way the book ends is there's like the wedding supper for the feast of the lamb. And we're going to have every tear wiped away and it's going to be rejoicing and celebrating and, you know, bottomless steak for everybody. And like we're looking forward to that. But we're like, we're like stuck in the cocktail hour for like our whole lives. But we really know him. And we're married right now. We have eternal life right now. That's what it's like. This is eternal life, knowing the one true God and the one who sent Jesus the Christ. That if you know Jesus, you are living in your eternal life till death do us not part. (laughs) Right now. You really have the relationship. You really have the eternal life. You're really laying hold of what the future will be like right now. But it gets better. And it gets better when Jesus comes back and makes all things new. This is one of the things we have to understand about following Jesus is this idea of knowing him is not like reading a book and getting your facts straight. Knowing him is like being with him. It's like riding a bike. It's like playing piano. It's, it's like dating. It's like getting to know somebody. It's time spent. It's personal experience. One of my favorite theologians, a guy named Herman Bovink, and he said it like this. He said, God is known to the extent that he is loved. This guy wrote a thing called Reform Dogmatics. It is this thick. And in the first chunk, he says, God is known to the extent he's loved. Not God is known to the extent that you write five volumes about him. Not God is known to the extent that you memorize the whole Bible. Not God is known to the extent you get your facts straight. Not God is known to the extent that you obey. Not God is known to the extent that you have information other people don't have. God is known to the extent that you adore Him, that you love Him, that you want to walk with Him, that you cherish Him, that you treasure Him, that you worship Him. That when you know Him as He is, when you see His character, 
faithfully, when you walk with him through highs and lows and ups and downs and sickness and death and richer for poorer, for better, for worse, when you get to see him in those ebbs and flows and you see the way he treats you and the way he treats others and you're disappointed in him and then he proves himself and you go, man, if I had known what he knew, now I, looking back, understand why he let those things play out and you, you grow over time in your knowledge of his beauty and character and the poetry and the way that he's writing world history when we see him and we cherish him, this is really knowing him. I talk to people all the time, and maybe it's because I'm like a theologically inclined person who are like, oh, I don't know him that, like you know him. And most of the time these people are holier, more godly than I am. I just have read more books and went to school longer. I don't know God better than the holiest person who's never read a theology book. I don't know God any better than a fervent worshiper of the Lord. I know people with PhDs who don't know God, PhDs in theology who don't know God. And I know sweet, barely literate, young children or aging adults who have a hard time putting a sentence together, but they know God better than me. That is just true. God is known to the extent that he's loved. That's one of the crazy things about marriage. You know, to, you get married when you're mostly young and stupid. And you go, yeah, till death do us part, for better or for worse. And you have no idea. And then you see sides of your spouse, sides of yourself. You didn't know we were there, and you're either pleasantly surprised or painfully disappointed. It's like relational knowledge matures over a lifetime as you walk together. It's true with the Father. This is eternal life. If you know him and the Jesus Christ, the one who you sent. Verse 4, Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. This is something I hope that all of us can say in our deathbed. Say in our deathbed. Father, I've glorified you, having accomplished what you've called me to do. This is something I've been praying for our staff, for our ministry leaders, for our whole church, for myself. For a couple of weeks now, like, you know, everyone does the new year, new me thing. It's like, nope. <laughs> so you pray and you pray. And it's your same new year, same me. But I've been praying that we would have this clarity of calling that would give us clear consciences. That we'd know what I'm called to do, what I'm not called to do. I'm going to serve God like this. This is my lane. This is not my lane. I'm going to say no to these good things for the sake of this one great thing. That we'd have these well-boundaried sense of calling in our life that by the time we get to our deathbed, we can say, Father, I've accomplished the work you've called me to do. Now, I don't think anybody can ever perfectly, legitimately say that besides Jesus. But I think we can make it our, our goal to make that as true as possible. I don't want to accomplish the work that Matthew's been given. I want to accomplish the work that I've been given. I don't want to accomplish the work that John's been given. I want to accomplish the work that I've been given, right? I want to stay in my lane, do what God's called me to do, and walk in the way of Jesus and go like, I've done it. Some of us spend way too much time comparing callings, comparing lanes, comparing assignments. It's just not helpful. It's unproductive. I want us to be able to follow the Spirit and say, God's called me to do this and not that or that or that and to not have to apologize for the people that disappoints. 
Because a lot of people have a lot of callings for you that aren't God. (laughs) Disappoint them. Good luck. (laughs) I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. So Jesus had glory before the world existed. That glory was manifest in God's perfect character, his truth, his goodness, his beauty. He gives some of that up to take on the form of a servant, to be born in the likeness of men. He lives a perfect life. And he's going, now restore to me that glory. And the way that glory is restored is going to be through his being high and lifted up, not on a throne, but on a cross. He's not going to be crowned with a crown of jewels. He's going to be crowned with a crown of thorns. He's going, that is how I'm going to restore my glory. Let me suffer and die for my kingdom, for my people. Let me die where they should have died. Let me not flourish that they might flourish. Let me go where they can't go. Let me drink the cup that they deserve. This is my glory. And I think about like the contrast. Like a, I was, this morning I was thinking about the movie Lion King where you have little Simba and you have the priest monkey cracks open the thing, dips his thumb in it and rubs it over his forehead like an anointing. That's actually what the word Christ means. Jesus Christ. It's not his last name. Christ means Messiah or the anointed one. That when someone's going to be anointed king, they are anointed with oil and then they're enthroned. And Jesus is anointed not with oil over his forehead, but he's anointed with a whip on his back. And he's anointed with our sin and he carries that with him up to the cross. And when the whole animal kingdom gathers around and the little monkey priest, I probably should know his name, but Rafiki, Rafiki carries, I'll keep calling him monkey priest, it sounds better. The monkey priest Rafiki carries Simba and holds him up on the edge of the mountain and you know it's like the, the light from heaven comes and beams down on the little Simba and it's like this behold your king and future king moment and all the animals bow down and, and go crazy. And I just think about how for most kings in world history, that's how it happens. Everyone gathers around and the glory moment, the weight moment, the, the attraction of the eyeballs, the seeing, the savoring, the sensing, look at him, look at how beautiful he is, look how magnificent he is, our future hope, gather around, bow down, celebrate, cheer. Instead, you have Jesus crucified, alone, naked, and people aren't cheering, they are jeering. People aren't celebrating, they're taunting. And he says, this is my glory moment. This is when you see me as who I really am. This is when I'm revealed as the king unlike other kings. This is when my glory is most clearly on display. Not when I reign on high in heaven above, but when I reign from below in darkness, suffering for your sin and dying in your place and purchasing your space in heaven. This is when my glory is most revealed. And Jesus is praying, saying, Father, do it. I'm ready. Everybody else in that room does not get what Jesus is praying. And Jesus is praying, Father, now is the time. I'm ready to be humiliated. I'm ready to be misunderstood. I'm ready to serve. I'm ready to die. Bring it on. And he prays this for himself. Father, accomplish what you've called me to accomplish. What a Savior. What a king unlike other kings. What glory unlike other glories. Let's pray to him. Father, I do ask dangerously that we at Redemption Gateway, that we would pray similar prayers. 
that you'd glorify us, not like Simba, not like the other kings, but you'd give us a chance to be seen by you, to serve, to be conduits of your love to others. And God, I pray when those moments come, that we wouldn't receive that as evidence of God has abandoned me, God has forgotten me, but we'd see this as an opportunity to be glorified like Jesus is glorified. God, help us with the eyes of our hearts see that glorifying you, making much of you, giving our attention to you, is the good life. It's the safe life because you're the only one that we can fully trust with our full attention. Amen.